Well, good morning. This is a time of new beginnings. I am the new, uh, we call them purposeful interim pastor, Jerry Curran. This is my wife, Sandy, up here on the front. And uh, we're here to help strengthen the church uh, during this transition to help it become more effective. Uh, you know from my accent that uh, I was uh, born in North Carolina, or as some of your uh, catechumens would say, I was born in sin. Well, that would be any state, wouldn't it, in the state of sin? This is the time of transition. Uh, last weekend, I wasn't here, but I've heard reports of how well you said goodbye to your pastor. Uh, I was very encouraged to hear how well you did that. I know it was a lot of uh, planning and prayer and preparation and then pres presenting everything. And I'm encouraged by that, how you did it, and I'm proud of you. And uh, we want to thank all of you that contributed to that. In fact, let's thank those, those of us that participated in it. Thank you. I appreciate that because saying goodbye well helps to start new well. Because then you can say, okay, that phase is passed. Now we enter our new phase. Well, why transition phase? Because we need to look back at the church. Uh, we need to look around. Uh, what's the history of the church? What, what is our community like? What changes have taken place? And then we need to look forward to the future, where we're going to be in the next year, five years, ten years. And then that helps put together a, a pastoral uh, job description, qualifications. What kind of pastor do we need to lead us in the, that next future. But we need to take the time, the same way that you take, took time to say goodbye. We need to take time to look back and look around and look forward so that uh, we can become more effective. And that's what Sandy and I hope to do with you in these next uh, few months. One scripture that uh, speaks well to me and I hope to you that is John 1.6 where uh, John is taking pains, pains to explain that John the Baptist was, John the baptizer was great. He was uh, the last great prophet, Old Testament prophet, like Elijah. And so powerful was his impact that many Jews thought he is the Messiah, and they began following him. And John, the writer, the apostle, wants to be clear in John chapter 1, no, Jesus is the light. John bore witness to the light. He was one saying, prepare the way of the Lord, make the path straight, get ready. But Jesus is the true light. John was the torchbearer lighting the path for the light that came behind him. And so he's careful in John chapter 1, verse 6 to say, there came a man sent by God whose name was John. And so you can see that breaks into three nice phrases. And of course, we know it's sanctified to have three points of a sermon because it's Trinitarian. So we know we're on good ground. There came a man. Why does God use people sent from God how do we know someone is sent? 
and his name was John. What's the significance of him having a name? So first of all, God sent a man. Why does God use people? He has other messengers that would be uh, more effective, certainly. Angels, they have louder voices, they shine, they can travel very quickly, they're powerful, and they never fail way back in the beginning, the beginning. So why not use angels? God uses angels. He used them to announce Christ's birth. He used them to announce prophecy. Why not use angels? In fact, Christ said one time, if people don't speak, the very rocks would cry out. So God can use rocks. You know, the sky and the trees and the mountains declare the glory of God. Why use human beings? Because certainly, oh, I see someone next to heaven out there. If you need a bulletin, raise your hand, and he'll get one uh, to you because the music's in there and some other stuff, and also the sermon outline is in there. Why would God use people? Because certainly there are pros and cons to using people. Well, I can think of one reason he might use people by virtue of their weakness. This is what the Scripture says in 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven. God shows the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Now, I'm not calling us you foolish, but the Scripture is, right? Uh, I'll admit, uh, sometimes I think foolish thoughts, I have foolish feelings, and I do foolish things. Am I alone? Okay, we're all in the same group this morning. God shows the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Okay, I, he's talking to me again. Physically weak, mentally weak, morally weak. So God receives greater glory when he uses weaker vessels because then it becomes apparent to a watching world things are happening more, they're more than can be explained just by human beings. Because God receives more glory. There's a second reason, this is what they said about Jesus in Hebrews 4. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. We have a high priest in Jesus that can sympathize because he knows what it's like to be tempted because he was tempted. So he can understand. And so we, your leaders, emulating Jesus, a human leader can understand where you're coming from because we've been there. So that's why God would use a John the Baptist, a human messenger, and also says in Hebrews, the priest is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. So there's a place for angels, but there's a place for people. Our very weaknesses glorify God when he works through us. But our weaknesses also allow us to be sympathetic and even gentle. Because we have been where you are. We are what you are. But those are some of the advantages. Everything has an advantage and a disadvantage, right? A pro and a con, a positive and a negative. 
Well, what are some of the negatives of having human beings as messengers, human beings as leaders, human beings that God sends to do his work? Well, I read here what it says about John in Matthew 3, 4. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his face, his waist. He didn't look that bad. He had to put his belt around his face, his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Now, that was certainly unusual. People were working very hard in Israel at the time to raise and grow food, meat and vegetables. So he was unusual, and they were spinning cloth so they'd have comfortable clothes. But you know what that tells me about John the Baptist? Even the greatest prophet had human needs. He needed clothing, and he needed food. That's how he differed from an angel. So that is both an advantage and a disadvantage of having a messenger or someone sent from God, a leader, who is human. They have needs. Now, neither Jesus nor John the Baptist were married, so they didn't have to provide for a family, and they didn't have to have a home, and they didn't have to have transportation, they didn't have to have insurance, they didn't have to have medical insurance and all that. But in Protestantism, we have said we can't forbid marriage to our leaders, and therefore, you have married clergy very often. And they come with family. And they have needs. And your officers, your elders and your deacons, your committee chairs, they have human needs. If they have time, if they have a family, they have needs for time to minister to their family. And so we can't organize a church such that it all is like an inverted pyramid and it falls on a few people. Because God uses people, and people are human, and people have needs. And so we have to either organize it so the burden is shared or have more people willing to share. Because God chose to use people. And let me insert a word here. We have needs. Uh, we have a, a need for an abode, which the church worked out. And now many of you have been working hard to help get it furnished. And we want to thank you for that. Someone carried some couches, and beds, and tables, and desks into our home. We tried hard to get a first floor apartment, both for your benefit and for ours. But we want to thank you for your working hard to recognize that we're human and we need that provision. There's another thing I notice about John. It's in Matthew 11. When John who was in prison, you remember he dared to speak up about Herod marrying his wife's sister, which was against the Mosaic law. And he dared to speak up. And he landed in prison. And it didn't look good. In fact, he ended up paying with his life. He was beheaded. So he's in prison and Jesus is preaching. When he heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent to his disciples to ask him to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Do you see the, the pathos in that? 
He's given his whole life, no family, no home, to representing the Messiah, to shining a torch, to lighting the way, to saying, behold the Lamb. And now he's beginning to wonder because he's human. Prison will do things to people. It dehumanizes. You're alone. I have visited prisons. I was with one in my first church in the county jail. And while I was there in his cell, talking with him, they brought in a new prisoner. And when you do that, it's a lockdown. And every metal gate and door in that prison clanged shut. And it was like a death nail to my ears. And it must have shown on my face, I can't leave. And my parishioner who was in that jail cell turned to me and said, pretty bad, isn't it, when they close all those doors? Prison does things to people, and that's why we visit people in prison, because they are human. They are weak, and we sympathize. And John had been in prison, and it didn't look like he was leaving, and he had a moment of questioning. I'm not sure he had doubt. I can't look at his heart, but he wanted to know, is my sacrifice worth it? And Jesus didn't say, who are you to doubt? If you would have faith, you could be strong. Your witness to your disciples is so weak that you have to question. He didn't do that. Because he was human as well as divine. He said, go tell John. The sick are healed. The blind are made, given sight. Go tell him what's happened. He responded to his need. So sometimes you're going to have messengers. Well, let's say all times. Messengers and leaders that are human. And they wonder, is this the right thing to do? Or how in the world do we handle this? And they spend late nights discussing it in committee chairs and committees and women's ministry and missions ministry and children's ministry and youth ministry and they're trying to figure out how do we do this because we doubt ourselves and we wonder how do we figure out are we really on God's will is this really the Messiah that we're investing so much for so when you get a human being as a new pastor or an officer an elder or deacon or a committee chair or a teacher or a leader you have the benefit of having someone who sympathizes and can be gentle with you. But you also have someone who has needs. And you have someone that sometimes actually has doubts and weaknesses. But actually, that's part of being human, isn't it? That's part of being human. So the reason God chose a man to send, a human being, was for these reasons. God, in his wisdom, is making that choice. Secondly, God sent a man. Uh, there was a man. What does it say? There came a man sent from God. Now, let's talk about what it means to be sent from God. The... Uh, 
when I, I went to seminary in Chicago, and when I was there, the mayor of Chicago was the eminent Richard J. Daly, not his son, the original. And what a guy he was. Lived in the same house his whole life. Every morning, limousine picked him up. On the way to the office, he went to Mass. But Chicago was a machine town, ward. It, uh, the motto of Chicago is a city that works well. Or work, what is it? A city that works hard? It's a city that works. It works well, and people work hard. And you didn't get a job unless you knew somebody. You were a nephew or a cousin or something because then you had to get out the troops to vote. And one time a young man came to Mayor Daly and said, I'm looking for a job. Can you send me to a department? And Mayor Daly said, who sent you? And the young man said, well, no one sent me. I came of my own. And Mayor Daly said, we don't want no one unless they sent. <laughs> there came a man sent from God. Sent from God. Now, Here's the question for you. How do you know if someone is sent from God? Well, that's easy. They perform miracles. They raise the dead. They heal the sick. They give blind, they, uh, bl uh, sight to the blind. That's easy. That's what the apostles did, right? All the apostles performed miracles. Uh, Paul performed miracles. And so that's one of the reasons Jesus performed miracles. He said, if you don't believe me, believe what's happening. And so that would just solve it. So I've decided this morning to perform a miracle <laughs> and just solve it from the beginning. But it turns out just deciding doesn't get it done. You are going to be disappointed this morning. And we see that happening even in the New Testament because there's Paul and there's Timothy and Titus. And Paul is telling Timothy, don't let anyone despise your youth, but study hard so that you can share the word of God with the people. And they'll know from the way you live and the way you preach that God is speaking through you. He didn't mention any miracles. In fact, he said, stir up the gift that is yours by the laying on of hands by me. In other words, an apostle had approved Timothy and set him. And that's why the Ephesians were supposed to accept him as a leader. The laying on of hands, that was the ordination part. In fact, our scripture agrees with this. It says in Hebrews about Jesus being a priest, Hebrews 5, 4, no one takes this honor on himself, but received it when called by God just as Aaron was. You see that? For this reason, for 2 Timothy 1, 6, Timothy, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So we have a, what's called an ordinary process. Doing a miracle we call extraordinary. That's the definition of a miracle. It violates natural law. It supersedes or replaces or violates natural law. That's how you know it's a miracle. When someone goes to the hospital and a skilled doctor treats them and uses modern medicine and they are healed, that's not per se a miracle. That used means. A miracle 
is when the doctor went to work and the medicine went to work and the doctor said, there's nothing we can do. This is a terminal case. Go home and have palliative care. And you see that person next week in church walking and talking and rosy-cheeked. Now, that could be spontaneous, but if it goes against the law, when you've got a dead person like Lazarus, three days, he would stink. This is what Mary said. And he comes walking out. See, that's a miracle. That's extraordinary, extra, above the ordinary. So in the church, God has given to us the use of ordinary means. In other words, how did I get here? I sensed a call from God. And so I began to pursue that call. And people around me said, when you preach, we enjoy listening. When you teach, we learn something. And so I pursued it from there. We went to seminary and took all these courses, Greek and Hebrew and, and church history and sacraments and languages and New Testament, Old Testament, all this stuff, systematic theology. And then graduated. Oh, my goodness, graduated. And then I went through an internship. And then I was examined by my presbytery. In fact, Nick is going through that now. Uh, five sections of written exams that takes days to fill out. And then a committee examines you. And then if they uh, approve you, then you go before the whole presbytery of lay elders and pastors who can ask any questions they want in these five categories. And then you have to get up and preach. Why do all that, Nick? Just do a miracle and short-circuit all this stuff. Okay, you like that. It'd be a lot easier, wouldn't it? Uh, I, before I came here, had to have a, a phone, a FaceTime exam by a committee of this presbytery. And Tuesday, I stand up in front of the whole presbytery, and they can ask me anything they want about my views. Those are ordinary means. So if you don't see me here next Sunday... Those are ordinary means, you see. Your officers here, elders and deacons, go through the same process. Usually the pastor preaches on, the, on the, the calling and the character and the doctrine and the duties, those four things, of officers, elders and deacons. And then you nominate. And then those nominees go through a training period. And at the end of that training period, they're examined by a written exam and oral examination before the elder board. And then if they pass all that, the ones you nominated, then they say, these have passed, they are qualified. Are they ready to serve? No. What's the final stamp of approval in a Presbyterian church? You elect them. You're the final say if you're a member of this church. And that's a hard one right. What time do we get through here? 11, 11.30, 12? <laughs> okay, I can share this. See, that's a hard-won right that you, the members of this church, elect your own officers. Because it used to be in Scotland and Ireland, the laird, the lord of the manor, had that living in his ownership. He could give, because see, the ministers were supported by tithes of everybody in the village. And, but it was in his gift, so he'd pick a nephew or a cousin or somebody like that. He may or not be called, he may, may not even be able to read, but he, you know, he's going to use that to reward someone in his family. 
And then it got to the point where people said, oh, I tell you what, I'll go around and buy four or five of these and get the tithe income, and then I'll hire a curate, a lowly person who may not be able to read, may not be born again, may be an alcoholic, and let him do the reading and the preaching. And the people said, hold on, being good Scots and Irish and Scots Irish, they said, hold on, we're paying the tithe. We're the one eating what he's doling out. Why don't we get to choose? And the Lord said, I'm going to fix this. And so he lopped off some heads. The right to choose your own leaders was paid for in blood. And that's the final step that this person is called. So an elder and a deacon that serves in a, this church, a Presbyterian church, is able to say, I felt called. My character was examined. I can do the duties. I have the time and the skill. I, I have studied and understand the doctrine. I've, been, I've passed written and oral exams. I've been interviewed by the session. And the congregation has elected me. And I'm still weak and doubtful at times. But I have the encouragement of knowing that through an ordinary process, God has spoken and encouraged me to lead. And then those elders and deacons use that authority that you gave them, and they appoint committee chairs and committees and leaders. And then they feel, well, God must have called me because the called and elected officers put me here. There came a man sent from God. There came a man sent from God. His name was John. He's named. Have you ever noticed how many names there are in the scripture? We know the names of all the apostles. We know the names of many prophets, major and minor, they're called because they wrote short books. We know the names of so many women, Mary, Martha, don't we? Because apparently they matter and their name signifies that it matters. John. The most popular name in the world for centuries has been James. The second most popular has been John. What is John in French? Jean, John. Jean Calvin, because he was French. Okay, what is it in Spanish? What is it? Juan. What is it in uh, Italian? Giovanni. Because in Greek it's Ioannes. And Giovanni sounds the most like Ioannes. What is it in Russian? What? No, I don't think so. Ivan. Ivan. Would Ivan the Terrible sound so bad if it was John the Terrible? <laughs> John, he had a name because people are important to God. And Jesus said, A shepherd knows his sheep, he knows them by name. So let's do this for a moment. There came a person sent from God, and the name was Jerry. 
Now you meet, you think, wait a minute. <laughs> He's got a southern accent. He was born in North Carolina. Uh, He's not the best preacher I've ever heard. Is he really sent from God? And that's why I shared with you about this whole process that your uh, elders uh, interviewed me and they checked with my organization and they thought it through and they talked with you. So I have confidence. And now I've got to be examined by Presbytery. And if they approve, then I think maybe I am. No miracles. Now, what was John's job? What was John's job? The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward me and said, Behold, that's King James, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was not the light, but his job was to point to the light. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. There came a human being sent by God whose name was now. Put your name in there. Think it out loud. You got your name? There came a human being sent by God that person's name was, now say your name out loud, all of you. Say it. You see, we're not the light. Our job is to hold up a torch so people can see the light by the way we live, by the way we minister, and by what we say to our neighbors, our family, our co-workers. It doesn't take a lot of talk. I serve Jesus. If more men and women would say that, you know how many lawsuits we'd save in businesses? I serve Jesus, and therefore, I will not take homecoming property. I will not misuse the credit card. I will not go to that party that demeans women, the secretary in the office. You see? We don't have to be great orators. By the way, what is our purpose as one sent by God? It says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. You see, a purpose is something that lasts forever. Everything we do in this world ends when we leave this world. Marriages end, our job ends. I don't think they're going to have computers in heaven. In fact, Edgar Allan Poe said, I became a writer because I didn't want to make a living off people's arguments. So there'll be no lawyers in heaven. I don't want to make a living off people's illnesses, be no doctors in heaven. I don't like make a living off people's sin, be no preachers in heaven. But what is the one thing we do on earth that we'll continue to do in heaven? And that is our eternal purpose. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is our purpose, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen. 
If we're sent by God, well, we're sent for what? To glorify God. How? In whatever we do, we glorify God in our humanity. Well, what is our mission? See, a mission is short-term and measurable. That happens in time. Our purpose as Christians is to glorify God as human beings. Our mission, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Making disciples. Making disciples. And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Witness and disciple. That's why we have church. So we can have the best possible environment to glorify God in worship. That's why you built this beautiful building. And to make disciples. And whatever you're doing here this morning, preparing food, ushering, serving, taking a collection, working in the nursery, working in the kitchen, teaching Sunday school, you are glorifying God and you're making disciples. And you are fulfilling your purpose and mission. Glorifying God, we make disciples by, that's your purpose statement, your mission statement as a church. Glorifying God, we make disciples by, and when you fill in the by, that's what makes Grace E.P. Church. Now, I've been talking to people who say, I follow Jesus. And there might be some here this morning, there probably are, I hope there are, yes, who are just trying to decide, is Jesus worthy of following? Should I follow him? How do I get there? Well, Scripture says this, opponents of the gospel are to be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. It's a gift of God. The first thing you ask God to do is give you the insight, the grace, the grace of a changed heart that says, I see now that my life doesn't follow Jesus, it opposes Jesus by ignoring him, by working against him. And the first thing you do is say, God, would you grant me the grace, the gift of repentance, which means turning away from that and turning to God. And then it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Faith is the noun, believe is the verb. So you're turning away from that old life and turning to Jesus. And then God gives us the grace called faith, which is the ability to say, his life of obedience and his death for sin can be mine and apply to me. And I can move from being outside his kingdom into his kingdom, from having his opponent as my Lord to having Jesus as my Lord, from having death as my destiny to having eternal life as my gift. Now, if you're in that situation, I, I urge you to stop and consider is Jesus worthy? He receives great glory when you come to the, when you come to the situation 
when you come to the point in your life where you're able to say, He is worthy of all glory, power, honor, and worship. And then when you come to that point, you have a new king. Those who have taken that step are called Christians. Believers, they are called men and women and children sent by God to glorify him and to make disciples. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you work in the affairs of mankind. That because we are hungry and thirsty and in darkness, you send men and women torchbearers to light the way to the source of light, Jesus Christ. Father, would you give grace to any who need it to repent, to turn from the old way of life and the gift of faith and believe to turn to Jesus and trust him for his death for them. Father, will you give us grace as a church to see ourselves as sent ones and understand that our purpose is to glorify you and our mission is to make disciples and then teach us to fill in the blanks by how do we do that? And Father, we know that our weakness will cause us to stumble and miss the target at times. But we're confident that the way you worked in John the Baptist's life, you will work in our lives. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I mentioned this. 